Thank you for joining us on CTL Supply Chain Frontiers. I'm Lauren Finnegan, a research associate in the MIT Humanitarian Supply Chain Lab, which is part of the Center for Transportation and Logistics at MIT. I'm Tim Russell, a research engineer at the Center for Transportation and Logistics in the Humanitarian Supply Chain Lab. Today, we're going to be talking about disaster response and especially how the public and private sectors can come together for the most effective logistical responses in the wake of a disaster. For this conversation, we're talking to Kathy Fulton, who serves as the executive director of the American Logistics Aid Network, otherwise known as Allen. Kathy, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me, Tim. Glad to be here. Why don't we start by asking you to tell us a little bit about the American Logistics Aid Network and the work that you do. Sure. So American Logistics Aid Network, or Allen, is a nonprofit organization that was formed by the industry associations. It happened really right after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. A group of industry professionals were together at a conference. They saw everything that was happening along the Gulf Coast and realized that it was really a logistics problem. There was actually quite a bit of frustration that as supply chain professionals, we could move widgets around the world within a day, but it was a challenge just to get food and basic necessities to the Superdome. So a group came together, and that's how we got our start. Since that time, we've really been active in just about every disaster that has occurred here in the United States. Some of the work that we do really centers around helping nonprofit organizations connect with donated or discounted logistics services for their response efforts. As we were doing that, we realized, hey, if we want these businesses to help nonprofits, we've got to ensure that those businesses themselves stay in business. So that led to us really working towards providing businesses with the right types of information. And as we were doing that, we realized that, hey, we're collecting a lot of information from businesses about how they're responding during disasters. And so we've since really after 2017 and Harvey, Emma and Maria turned that into helping government, especially FEMA, understand what's happening with private sector supply chains during disaster response. So we do all kinds of things. We, you know, coordinate those logistics solutions. We convene, we bring people together. We do a little bit of education because who doesn't love education around, you know, if we weren't learning and, and, it, sharing that knowledge, you know, what what good would it be? Um, and then that information management really helping to to get that information pushed out to the various communities. Thanks, Kathy. Where are you active now in disasters or where have you been active recently in supporting disasters through Allen? Yeah, that's a great question, Lauren. Thanks for asking. It feels like there's a new disaster happening every single day. Earlier this year, we responded to tornadoes across the, the south, central area and southeast. The flooding, you know, just this crazy flooding that happened in California. And then last year, probably the, the biggest event we've had in a few years was Hurricane Ian and just responding to the needs in southwest Florida. Like I said, it feels like there's something going on uh, every single day and whether we're preparing for actively responding or helping someone recover from a disaster that just the work never stops. Hey, Kathy, could you say a little bit about Operation Barbecue and the work you did with them after yeah. Hurricane Ian? Yeah, they're a really interesting nonprofit organization. They provide feeding support for both first responders and disaster survivors. And so there were a couple of really interesting things that they needed. You know, they buy all of their food in mass quantities 
or get it donated in a lot of cases. So we were helping them with the transportation from the the producers, you know, whether it was corn coming from the the Midwest or you know, there's a bread factory that was sharing some frozen rolls. Um, and really, we were helping them with all those inbound logistics activities just so that they could then have the resources there to set up their huge kitchen uh, and cook, you know, delicious hot meals. Um, they call it the one hot meal that matters. The really interesting thing about that is we've built such a great relationship with them that earlier this spring, I got a call at like two o'clock on a Friday afternoon, you know, just kind of this frantic call saying, hey, we have this fabulous donation of six truckloads of pork butts, but we have to have it in a you know, we have to be able to accept it by Monday morning. That's almost unheard of, right? You know, in the logistics world, things tend to shut down sometimes early afternoon on Fridays. And so I'm like, I don't know, but we're going to put the word out. And within two hours, we had actually found a warehouse space in Dallas for them. And it's just an amazing story because not, not only did that food get rescued, it meant that, you know, sometime later this year when they cook and they're going to have to cook and they have been cooking, half a million people are going to have a delicious hot meal that matters simply because a warehouse said, yeah, we can take that stuff. It's no problem for us. It's a few pallet positions and maybe a little bit of logistics, but it's doing a lot of good. Yeah, I absolutely love that story. I tell it all the time, you know, and when someone asks me what Alan does or how we're involved. So when you put it in the context of how many people will be served, I think that's just, it's amazing. Yeah. So that's a great example of connecting the donation with a space that can handle it on the logistics side. How does Alan broadly think about making those connections and ensure that the private sector actors are connected with the right organizations during a disaster and, you know, in this example, kind of blue sky times, if you will. Yeah. So there's an old adage, you never want to exchange business cards at a disaster. And we ascribe to that. Absolutely. We do a whole lot to help build relationships, build trust before a disaster happens but we also know that that battle buddy mentality, and you know, I kind of hate that analogy, but it's a true one in that, hey, if we can work together to solve a common challenge, especially during a disaster, I'm going to have a stronger bond. I'm going to have a stronger emotional connection with that person. So we can do all we want to, you know, introducing people. And Tim and Lauren, you guys have both been so helpful with the calls that we have where we bring the private sector actors together and just get them together when a disaster is not happening. But we also know that when they can work together, they can solve that problem together. It's going to drive something in them to want to do that again and again and again. So that's an, actually an example of kind of private, private activities coming together. We also do work, private, public kind of activities. You're both very involved in the, the SCAN, Supply Chain Analysis Network work. Um, you, you guys have the hard job of actually looking at the data and trying to figure out what it means. I get the easy job of talking to people and saying, hey, does you know all this analysis that uh, the smart folks at MIT did, does it, this make sense to you in your business? So that's kind of also something where we're able to, to use those conversations, help share information with the private sector, and then that information gets reflected back to government officials to help with their decision making. So it's building those connections. It's the give and take of relationships. 
Um, so it's, you know, it's also kind of an interesting perspective on how information flow really aids with relationships. Yeah. And, and I think even back to the early days of COVID when we were all learning about supply chains because of the challenges of getting food on the table. And so I think that's a really great way to recognize those individuals because I have to imagine that is what helps drive people to continue to work with Alan. So I'm curious what you hear from people in a disaster before a disaster about why they're engaged. Yeah, it's really interesting when we ask people, hey, what is important to you? Why are you doing this? The number one answer we always get is it's the right thing to do. There's a community mindedness to it. We do have a few who are honest with us and say, hey, we, you know, we see a brand opportunity here. I've had a couple of them say that to me, right? It's our business. But mostly the the people who are doing it are not making money off of it, for sure, right? This is just a, a way for them to give back to their communities. It's a way to do something using their expertise. Like it's using the stuff that they do every single day to make money for their businesses to make a difference in the world. And I think that that's what resonates with people. It's like, oh, you know, I can move a widget and somebody's going to, you know, enjoy playing with that widget, or I can move food and somebody's going to have a meal tonight. So I think that connecting it to my day job, being able to say, hey, this is something that, you know, I do, and maybe I don't feel like it makes a huge difference every single day, but I know during a disaster, I know that what I'm doing is making a difference. I think that people appreciate that. If there's people out there that are interested in helping in a disaster, like what can they do or how could they connect with you to be able to do that good that you're talking about? Well, they can offer up their services, you know, their transportation, their warehousing, their material handling equipment. They can do that on our website, allenaid.org. Reach out to us. You know, we're always happy to add more people. You know, we're pre-positioning those relationships and instead of pre-positioning supplies, we're pre-positioning those services. So allenaid.org is, is going to be the best way to reach us. And then we'll just take it from there. We want to help people do the good that they want to do. We want to get them engaged in the geography with the services, helping the people that they want to help. We want it to be a win, 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 win all the way around. So you mentioned, this is pivoting a little bit, but you mentioned earlier about the information sharing aspect of what Alan does and how you realized you were getting a lot of information in and the value of that information for your partners and stakeholders. Can you talk a little bit about the Supply Chain Intelligence Center? Yeah. So our Supply Chain Intelligence Center is a partnership with a group called Everstream Analytics. And it's honestly, it's one of those back of the napkin bar conversations that happened very early in COVID, um, actually like about March 12th of 2020, where we're sitting around going, this is crazy. Every governor, every mayor has decided to implement all of these different non-pharmaceutical interventions, whether it's a curfew or you have to wear personal protective equipment or you know, truck drivers can't go into businesses, whatever, whatever that is, it's going to cause friction in the supply chain. And so we needed a way to, to track that. Well, Everstream's platform is GIS based. And so we were able to take every major city and every county in the United States and map them and track every NPI that was in place. So at one point in time, it was 
160,000 data points or something that we're getting refreshed every 24 to 48 hours. Now we're using it primarily to look at all of the weather data that's out there. We are just starting to add events like civil unrest, the event that happened in Philadelphia with the bridge collapse. And what happens is uh, you can see all of the infrastructure in the United States. You can see ports and airports and major intersections, the top 100 supply chain bottlenecks. You can see all of those and you can see what may be disrupting them at any point in time. It's free, right? Everstream has just been really generous and anybody who wants to sign up for that can do so. I was at a nonprofit conference a couple of weeks ago and someone walked up to me and said, I look at your map every single day. It was a food bank. We're moving food out to our partner food pantries every single day. I want to know what the weather looks like around those on those routes. I want to know what my truck drivers are going to be facing so that, you know, if they're departing our facility at eight o'clock in the morning and not delivering till two o'clock in the afternoon, what's the weather going to look like at two o'clock in the afternoon? Do they need to reschedule that delivery? So it's been really fun to know that it's making an impact on daily lives. It wasn't just a, a COVID thing, but people are still using it. So I was looking at the Allen, I pulled up the Allen webpage and I saw the information on Super Typhoon Moir. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about if you were involved in any response for Super Typhoon Moir and if you can talk a little bit more more about how a response to an OCONUS or outside of the contiguous United States disaster is different than a disaster within the contiguous United States. So I think about, you know, Puerto Rico Hurricanes Irma, Maria in Puerto Rico in 2017, as well as recently Super Typhoon Mawar. Yeah. So I'll talk a little bit about our work and then I'll talk about how, you know, just response is different when you get into an island situation. So for Alan, we're primarily working domestic U.S. lower 48, let's say, activities. But what we find is that a lot of our partners who are based here in the lower 48 want to respond. Um, and so they need that first mile logistics support, whether that is, you know, a place to stage their supplies, a warehouse to stage it near a port or transportation to that port or airport. So we are going to get involved with that. The reason we activated for Typhoon Marwar is because we weren't sure what that was going to look like. We needed to be ready in case any of our partners decided that they're going to ship stuff. It hasn't happened yet. That doesn't mean it won't. Recovery is a long process, right? And the damage that was done from Mawar with the floods and winds, um, th they're going to need support for, for quite some time. So the second part of the question you asked, Lauren, is how does that differ well, <laughs> boats get involved and planes get involved, right? And we don't do a, a whole lot with that. We have some amazing partners who do ocean and air transport. But anytime you are constrained by the ways in which you can get supplies to an area, that's going to complicate your response efforts. And you guys know this far better than me, but it just reduces your options, right? Especially in, in Guam with Mawar, where they don't grow most of their resources, right? They don't grow most of their food. Most of it's coming from somewhere else, whether that's Asia Pacific or the West Coast of the United States. So it takes a long time to get there, right? It has to go by boat. It has to go by plane. Even by plane, it's a 
I, I don't even know for, you know, if you're sending something from Seattle, how long does that take? Hours and hours and hours, right? So when you talk about the logistics and the response to island situations or remote situations where you're cut off from land-based transportation options, that's just going to complicate matters because it limits your ability to move a lot of things. Um, you can't take trains, you can't, can't take trucks and boats and airplanes only have so much capacity and so many landing slots and, 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 and it just a, is a ripple effect of how much you can push through. This is where the critical node analysis that your team is working on is so important. Like it's going to help us all better understand why those nodes are critical and what the throughput is for them. When you first started talking about Alan activating in response to the storm in Guam, you mentioned something that I think that is also really important, not just the critical node pieces, but you mentioned that you were activated to see what you didn't know, to see about the demands that were there. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that importance of connecting that supply and that demand pieces. Yeah, I'm constantly having to remind people that you don't want to ship something if nobody needs it, right? Because it's just going to cause a problem. So being very demand focused, modern commercial supply chains, for the most part, are demand focused, right? There are still places where we're trying to create a market with a product, but we want to respond to what's really needed. So we're constantly asking our partners. We have a couple of organizations we work with who do have members on the ground. They have all come through fine. But understanding, hey, what are the needs? Because if we're sending things that you don't need, then it becomes a waste problem. And in an island like Guam, there's no excess place to put that. We saw this problem in Puerto Rico after Irma Maria with plastic water bottles, right? So much water was sent over and there's a whole other story about that. But it was because there was no true understanding of what was really and truly needed. So thinking about that, working with our partners, talking to people who are as local as possible, and then once our response partners are on the ground, understanding from them their situational awareness, having those conversations with them so we can say, this is not necessarily something where we need to get involved, or yes, we absolutely need to get involved. I also like how during disasters, these conversations that we have with Alan and the the associations and the private sector like you're able to complete that loop and let the federal government understand the needs of the private sector. It's a different set of supply and demand, but like, what does the private sector need to be able to stand back up? Oh, yeah. I'm going to say something more about Mawar first, and then I want to talk about that a little bit, because with Mawar, when we did ask our association partner, hey, what do your members need? The response we got back, and it was a logistics company who said, what we need is more freight to move. <laughs> like we're open, right? We're in business. Just tell us what you need moved and, you know, connect us to the federal government and other organizations who can, you know, help us make money, which is great. You know, I'm not knocking that at all, but it was very obvious that recovery was well underway for that organization. So yeah, when you think about the things that businesses need, oftentimes they relate in some way to supply chain activities. They need debris cleared, or in the case of Philadelphia, I hate to keep going back to that, or they need a bridge rebuilt, right? Or they need power so that they can 
get their factory back up and running so that they can produce those critical items rather than government having to bring in the short-term relief items, right? Um, And it's understanding things really as an ecosystem and understanding that things that were provided by private sector before a disaster should, to the extent possible, continue to be provided by private sector after a disaster. The National Academies report that the Humanitarian Supply Chain Lab did a lot of work on back in 2018, 2019, 2020, really showed that restoration of those pre-existing supply chains is the best way to serve communities after disaster. But if government, who is controlling some of the restoration priorities, is unaware of what they are, then we're at odds. I, I think that you know after disaster, we all kind of want the same things. We just have different ideas about how they should happen, right? We want everybody to have nutrition and hydration and medical care, but sometimes uh, government thinks that they should be the ones providing it in the immediate aftermath of, of a disaster and private sector, you know, both for financial reasons, but also because they're better at it if they've been doing it, they think that they should be the ones doing it. So it's just a matter of, hey, we all want the same thing. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's figure out how we remove barriers. So we do what's in the best interest of the community. So building on this discussion about government and private sector working together after disaster, in an earlier segment of this podcast, we talked about the role of government during a disaster. And a lot of Alan's work, or part of Alan's work at least, focuses on bringing together the public and private sectors for an optimal disaster response. Can you talk a little bit about that partnership and how it can realize its full potential? Yeah. And, you know, I'll go back to to something I said about, you know, we all want the same things, right? We want people to have nourishment. We want people to have hydration. We want people to have medical care. We want to restore our communities back to where they were previously or even better. I, I hope that we want them to be better in, in a lot of cases. But bringing people together can be a challenge because we are all busy with our day jobs, right? We all have, absent a disaster, we're all running in different directions on our own projects. So how do we stop and think about, okay, what is it that we're going to ask you for in a disaster? What is private sector going to ask for during a disaster? And it comes down to like just a handful of things over and over and over again, they want things so that transportation goes smoother, right? They they want those hours of service waivers and, and weight waivers and things that are going to help them respond to the additional demand that they're seeing at the beginning of a disaster. They want things that can help their employees get back to work. And that can be a whole suite of things. In Hurricane Ida in Louisiana, one of the big challenges had to do with fuel. And lots and lots of reasons for that, which I'm sure Tim can elaborate on for hours and hours, right? But the workers in the grocery stores had to wait in line to get fuel. Now, there was fuel that was slowly being pushed out, but the lines, you know, to get it were long. Their grocery stores were open either because they had generators or because power had been restored to them. But if you can't staff a grocery store, it doesn't matter how much product is on the shelves, you can't do anything about it. And so sometimes from a government perspective, is fuel for grocery store workers something that they should be worried about? You know, it's a private sector problem. It's a business problem. It's not really something that that government should ever really be thinking about, except 
that if you don't get the grocery store to open, it means you have to pass out more meals ready to eat, right? So then you have to calculate what's the expense of helping these workers access fuel versus the expense of me moving meals ready to eat or bottled water to people. So again, looking at things as an ecosystem and understanding what's going to be best for this community. Is it to do something maybe a little bit out of the norm to help these grocery store workers get access to fuel? Or is it, I just, you know, I'm following my checklist that that I've always done. And so I think that's one of the challenges. That's where I think the conversation needs to center is really on that common ground. What's best for the survivor? What's best for the community? What is best for everybody's budget, quite honestly, right? Because in the end, it, it ends up being cheaper if you can help people access food in the way that they've accessed it all along. Yeah, I feel like the the conversation, at least since we've been in this conversation with Alan and the government since 2017, like it's progressed and it's making progress. Like when the pandemic first started, we saw this desire to get the right people on the essential workers list, to get truck drivers in there, to get warehouses in there, to get the ability for logistics to flow. You know, we got that push from the private sector and then we heard the public sector want to listen to this concern and be able to take it and run with it. The conversation's really improving, right? It is. And one of the really interesting things about that is the conversation is actually really improving on the private sector side amongst themselves. You know, we're talking to lots of different private sector people all the time and where they can, you know, where they're legally allowed to, and there are exceptions where, where they can't, you know, collaborate. They're figuring out how to come together and have that one voice to say, Hey, this isn't just a problem with grocery store X or grocery store Y. All of the grocery stores are having this problem. And they're actually, there's mutual support that happens between them. You know, the major grocery store in Texas will ship water to the major grocery store in Florida and vice versa during major events. So we're seeing that collaboration, especially when there's not, you know, direct competition. But even when there is direct competition, we're seeing those businesses figure out how to work together. When they can come together with one voice and talk to government and say, here's the problem, you know, like at the beginning of COVID when everybody was screaming, hey, can't do anything if you don't have truck drivers. I think that that's when the real progress is going to be made. I hope that we don't have to wait for another pandemic or a major catastrophic event. You know, I'm hopeful for some of the conversations that are happening around the country right now, but it's that agreeing to work together across all sectors that's going to make a difference. So, Kathy, you just mentioned the Fuel Wholesaler Association that did a good job of trying to reach out and bring people in after Hurricane Ida. Who else is doing really good work in this area? Yeah. So, Energy Marketers Association, right? Um, That team has figured it out like they can do something nationwide. Um, Another group that's really doing interesting things is FMI, the Food Industry Association. They work at the retail store level. And they've started some information sharing initiatives. Um, They've started some education initiatives. Uh, They're really figuring out that they want to take those best practices from their members who have unfortunately learned because of challenges that they've been through. But they want to 
make that a standard across all of the members in their association. I really applaud that. Um, I applaud the work that's being done there. I know that there are others who are out there. These are just a couple of examples of groups. I'll also say that we're seeing FEMA trying to be smarter about this as well, right? FEMA really has a desire to listen and learn from private sector. I think that was part of the big push behind Supply Chain Analysis Network, SCAN, is to really say, hey, we know that business, you guys are doing logistics and supply chain every day. FEMA does it a few days a year, hopefully only a few days a year, right? Um, We want to stay out of your way, do no harm. As Mr. Dorco says, um, Jeff Dorco, who leads FEMA's logistics management directorate, is always saying, hey, you know, first do no harm. We want to stay out of business this way. Um, And so when we're seeing that from government, you know, we hope that it can have an influence across all of the agencies in government. FEMA gets called in to coordinate a lot of things, right? And they are the disaster agency, but there are other groups who have supply chain initiatives happening, you know, from the White House to Congress, you know, in the Congressional Supply Chain Caucus, wherever it is, we just hope that they are listening to the right partners and listening to the the pros, the literally the people who do supply chain every day, right? Let us as an industry help inform what those policies end up being. As we uh, head into the hurricane season, what are your hopes and your fears? <sighs> hopes and fears. You know, hope is not a strategy. So really, I do hope that it's a quiet season, right? I hope that the models that the Weather Service and the Hurricane Center have hold out and that, you know, we have less hurricanes this year. But what I really hope is that people will, you know, decide that they want to get involved if something does happen, that they'll, you know, look to the best part of themselves and say, what is it that I can do that's going to make a difference and not cause additional problems? So that's what I hope. Yeah, I haven't seen that disaster fatigue play out yet. It seems like people are still willing to help and people are still willing to to reach out and uh, to do for others. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it's really interesting because we're in this very strange time in logistics and supply chain right now, right? Just really strange time. If you look at the numbers and the number of loads that are moving and this kind of this post-pandemic, you know, where, what's really happening out there, um, does that mean that there's more capacity and more opportunities for people to do good? I hope so. Um, I hope that they won't wait till something happens. But you're right. Disaster fatigue, we've not seen that. I hope we don't. <laughs> you know, that's another hope. I don't know. But again, it's not a strategy. So we're still all going to bust our backsides trying to, to make sure that people know how they can help. So, Kathy, you talked about like education. You talked about this like information flow and building these connections. Maybe you could say a little bit about the humanitarian logistics awards that you guys have. Yeah, thanks for asking about our our humanitarian logistics awards, um, or as my team affectionately calls them behind the scenes, our hulas. So it's something we started back in 2017 or 2018. It's really about recognizing the amazing work that is getting done by supply chain professionals and logisticians to support the advancement of humanitarian activities. So maybe, you know, these businesses or individuals that we're recognizing, maybe their primary job isn't humanitarian response, but they've figured out that something about it 
drives them. There's something that interests them for it. We've been fortunate to recognize the Humanitarian Supply Chain Lab as one of our previous recipients. After our work together in, in 2017 on Harvey Irma and Maria, I'm just thrilled that that relationship has just continued to, to grow and expand. So the awards recognize either businesses, individuals, educators who are just doing good in the world through their skills and expertise and knowledge. Yeah, I think that recognition is so important to really, you know, especially in the disaster space when people a lot of times have their heads down and are constantly responding to step back and acknowledge that hard work is so important. Logistics is, and supply chain are always behind the scenes, right? So, you know, even after we've been through the last three years of the pandemic, where supply chain was in the news every single day, people think that they understand what logistics and supply chain is, but but they really don't. And so we want to take something that can be seen as a frustration for people who likes to be stuck behind a truck, right? Or who likes the noise that happens at the warehouse down the street, right? It, those are things that can be nuisances in the community or seen as nuisances. And what we want to do is say, hey, if it weren't for these things, you wouldn't have food on your table. And oh, by the way, even more so after a disaster, when logistics is everything, you know, the statistic that everybody cites, 60 to 80% of humanitarian spending goes towards logistics. Well, we just want to recognize a little piece of that, right? We want people to know there are people out there, really smart people, really dedicated people who are doing so much good. Let's tell the world about them. So, Kathy, I'm curious to learn a little bit about you. So, in your professional life or elsewhere, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What keeps you running? Literally. <laughs> Boy, I wish I were doing a whole lot more running than I am these days. But um, what gets me out of bed is the opportunity to show love to people and in practical ways. Um, I often say that I have the absolute best job in the world. I truly believe that because I get to work on a different type of challenge every single day. I never know what my day is going to look like when I get up in the morning, right? Um, I get to work with really cool people, people who are passionate about what they do, people who are incredibly smart, people who are incredibly dedicated, people who just want to do the right thing. And I would say, finally, you know, I know that the work that we're doing makes a difference. I know that to go back to the Operation Barbecue Relief example, I know that half a million people are going to get a hot meal at some point this year just because I took five minutes and made a phone call, right? That's the easy, I have the easy job, right? I just have to make a phone call or send an email and, and people respond. So what gets me out of bed in the morning is the opportunity to live out love in practical ways. And sometimes love is an email. Sometimes love is, an, is a phone call, but that's what gets me going. I love that. So Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else you want to add um, as we wrap up this conversation? Yeah, Lauren, Tim, I, I just want to say thank you for all that your team does. It is so much fun to get to work with the two of you and Jared and Chelsea and Shrada and everybody else who had the opportunity to hang out with um, at the cool kids table over the past few years. Just we couldn't, Alan couldn't do what we do without the volunteer time that you put towards our organization. So we're super grateful for that. You know, I love the partnership and I'm just so thankful that we get to work with you. 
We are too. We really like working with you, Kathy. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine doing the work without you guys. Thank you, Kathy. I know I've learned a lot about Alan in this conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks, Lauren and Tim. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Kathy. Well, thanks for joining us on CTL Supply Chain Frontiers. I'm Tim Russell, research engineer at the Center for Transportation Logistics in the Humanitarian Supply Chain Lab. And I am Lauren Finnegan, a research associate at the MIT Humanitarian Supply Chain Lab. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of MIT Supply Chain Frontiers. My name is Arthur Grau, Communications Officer for the Center, and I invite you to visit us anytime at ctl.mit.edu or search for MIT Supply Chain Frontiers on your favorite listening platform. Until next time.